So, brothers and sisters, last week we set in upon a, a study of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, uh, and we set up a kind of plan. I'd like to review that a little bit, uh, a pattern for reading and understanding each of God's commands. As we, uh, as we read and seek to understand the law of God, we ought first to consider the holiness of God. Uh, the law of God is really the expression of God's own holiness. Of course, in order to understand this, we need to remember the story of creation. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning, God created man in his own image, righteous and holy. So God, by his law, only commands what he first gave to mankind in the beginning. We need to resist the temptation uh, to think that God is being demanding or unjust. Uh, Instead, as the God of holiness, without sin, he commands us to be holy, having created us in his own image. Second, by way of review, when when we receive the law of God, we must hear it as a teacher of sin. The story of creation leads to the account given of the fall of mankind into sin by the sin of our first parents. So so sin uh, must be understood for what it is, not, not, not just incidental infractions, but as a state or a a condition into which every person is born. And one of the effects of sin is that we deny our sin. Uh, There really is no parallel illustration for this, but but imagine a a group of hikers uh, that they are lost in the wilderness. Um, They are lost in and doomed to succumb to the elements so that when their rescuers come, they somehow need to be convinced that they are lost and and doomed. No, no, they say, uh, we're just fine. Uh, Let us alone. In the meantime, the sun is going down. They have no food or drink. The wolves of the wilderness are growling and salivating. Uh, No, no, we'll, we'll be just fine, they say. Well, that's what mankind is is like under the effects of sin. Leave us alone to face our doom. And so it's a gracious ministry. Uh, It's an undeserved help from God for him to give us his law so that we might see and know our plight. So that we might be glad to see Christ show up and to be the Savior that we need as we are surrounded by a wilderness of our own sin. Therefore, what does the law of of God do for us? Next, it teaches us what Christ has done for us. This is a marvelous aspect of the the law, I think, and often neglected. The, The just demand and requirement of God is for perfect obedience not just for more good stacked up against the bad. And while God is just, he is also gracious 
and merciful toward us in our sin, because he is just, he requires perfect obedience, because he is gracious, he provides the perfect obedience that he justly requires. That which he demands, he supplies. That's the gospel. That which he demands, he supplies through Jesus Christ. That we might be counted righteous, declared to be perfectly obedient as we believe and trust and rest in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so what does the law of God do next? It serves us well to teach us how to live a thankful life to God. Think here of, uh, of the person who has been blessed. Uh, some great blessing has come to this person so that he thinks, what, what can I do uh, to say thank you? I, I want to do something for the person who has so richly blessed me. Tell me what is meaningful, something I can do to return thanks to the person who has, who has so blessed me. Well, he really likes this or that. Is, is the reply. So, so you could give him this gift as a, as a thank you. Well, that's, that's an oversimplification because in the end, we cannot repay the debt that we owe to Christ. We, 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 we have a debt in our sin that we cannot pay, at least not to be saved. You know, we, we can pay our debt uh, by an eternity in hell, but we cannot pay our debt unto salvation. So we have a debt that we cannot pay, not unto salvation. Jesus paid that debt for us. So how do we repay him? Well, if if we could not pay for it before he paid it for us, why do we expect to be able to repay it to him after he paid it for us? And so Psalm 16 says, with, uh, with a, sense of, uh, a sense of amazement, what, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The only answer is, I will lift up the cup of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, I, I, will, I, will, I will live thankfully to God. I, I will rely upon him. I, I will admit my dependence upon him, and I will seek from him all that I need. This is what honors him. Oh, what a, what a horrible thing to have to do to rely upon God. In order to give thanks to God, we, we must merely seek and, and receive his blessing upon us each and every day as we live in his blessed presence. So that brings us to the first commandment, because the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me, says God, meaning in my presence. Here is an important lesson from the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament, that God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people. And his blessing comes to his people only by way of his, ple- uh, of his presence. We see it already in the story of creation. After, uh, after the fall, uh, 
we, uh, we hear that, uh, that God came walking in the garden, which, which makes it clear that, that God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden saying, you go live over there and, uh, and I'll stay over here apart from you. No, God came walking in the garden because God and man were living in communion. It was God's plan, God's design from the beginning. So now as God rescues his people, as he delivers his people from the oppression of a rival foreign king named Pharaoh, so he commands, don't bring Pharaoh into our fellowship. It's you and me now, is what God is saying to his people. And he doesn't want any... He doesn't want any false gods to share in the fellowship that he would enjoy with his people. Got to think about it that way. God saved his people in order to dwell with them and in order that they might dwell with him in the promised land. Here's where we need to understand what we might call the, the prologue to his law. God, in a sense, introduces his law with a, a statement. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But we need to hear this not just as a, a statement. It is a statement, but, but more than a statement, because it's a statement of victory. Here is God declaring his victory. In our own day and culture, um, we hear it said, I came, I saw, I conquered. I came, I saw, I conquered. We hear it said, we are the champions. And this is not the trash talk of our day and culture. This obviously is not God saying what he will do, but what he has done. He had come for his people. He had, he had acted on behalf of his people. He had intervened on behalf of his people. And he was gloriously victorious. Egypt was destroyed. His people were even given, if you remember the story, to plunder the people of Egypt. God had commanded his people not to leave Egypt empty-handed, but that they should ask for gifts from the Egyptian people upon their departure. Even more, Pharaoh, having once again changed his mind, gathered his army, he charged after Israel to bring them back under his rule and slavery. But what happened? Pharaoh and his army were drowned by their pride in the Red Sea, and they were drowned, and they were defeated, and they were destroyed. So let us not read Exodus 20, verse 2, as a mere statement. I, the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is a, it is a statement, but it's a declaration. It's, it comes with trumpet fanfare. I am the Lord your God. 
Before me, the king of Egypt was your Lord and your king. But I have defeated him. I have, I have conquered him. I have destroyed your enemy on your behalf. I came. I saw. I conquered. Except for God, there's a different order. In Exodus 3, we hear God say to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So it's not that God came and then saw and conquered. Instead, he saw from afar. He saw from heaven. He came and he conquered. And this is what God is declaring. It really is a can we hear it? I, I, I want us to hear it. It's, it's a royal edict. It's, it's, it's a declaration of victory. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, is that, is that too bold of God? Is, is God uh, simply taking the place of Pharaoh? Uh, we have to ask ourselves this question with respect to the law of God. Is, is God being a tyrant when he gives us his law? So he defeated the other king. He's now the king. So now he gets to boss us around. But all we have to do is to ask, brothers and sisters, where would we be if God had not delivered us from our slavery to sin and from the tyranny of Satan? Okay, so look upon God as, as being bossy, being demanding by his law. But where would you be without Christ? Where would you be without Christ? You would be under the control of Satan, and you would be bound for hell along with him. We need to understand, really, and, and truly to understand and believe what has happened. By believing in Christ... Have we simply adopted a, a family tradition? My mom and dad are, are Christian, so I'm a Christian too. Uh, have we only taken up some cultural trend? Yeah, Christianity is kind of the thing to do. Or have we been delivered from death? Have we been delivered from hell? Have we been delivered out of from under the rule of Satan. Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 13 that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why we come to church every Sunday, just to get reminded of this, that to, to understand again, to remember what has happened, what God has done for us, and what God has done in us. Forgiveness of sins, yes. The credit of perfect obedience, yes. But this unto deliverance from death, and from hell, we need to 
understand that God declares his victory for us and even over us, even before he gives us his law. Even more, we need to, we really need to understand that that God is the God indeed who dwells with his people. It was true in the beginning, as we can see, as God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The interesting thing is that uh, at that very moment, when it becomes clear in the story of creation that God created mankind to live in his presence, it was at that very moment that we also see the separation between God and man, the alienation from God that came by sin. God came walking in the cool of the day, but man hid from God. Imagine, if you will, that, uh, that your husband or your wife is returning home at the end of the day and Instead of greeting him or her at the door, you hide. You hide in the basement. You, you crawl up into the attic. You, you duck under the bed. You don't want to face the one coming in the door because you know your guilt. You don't want to face the music, as we say. Well, that's the picture. That's the scene in the Garden of Eden as God comes walking in the cool of the, of the day. Where are you? God asked. But what God really meant is, as an all-knowing God, a God already knowing where Adam was and what he had done, the question was really, why are you hiding from me? And again, it wasn't that God didn't already know why Adam was hiding from him why he was hiding in the basement, why he had crawled up into the attic. In that moment, the Garden of Eden became a court of law because even though God was a personal God, a God who dwells with his people, yet he was also a God of justice and a God of vengeance and a God of judgment for sin. But also he was and is a God of grace and mercy. We really need constantly to hold these, these two attributes of God in mind. Otherwise, we will end up with some false God. Both the justice and the mercy of God. As God is just, sin must be punished. If sin be not punished... God ceases to be God, and that cannot happen. God is not going to quit being God to put himself out of existence in order to satisfy our desire for a false God. But the same is true of the mercy of God, that, that if, if mercy not be shown to sinners, then God ceases to be God. And that cannot happen. It might seem like God is trapped. uh, Trapped between his justice and and his mercy. Maybe maybe parents feel this way at times. Uh, uh, A parent may not uh, 
uh, or a parent uh, not only wants, but needs obedience from their child. Without obedience, life is, is miserable. Every day there's a degree of misery, right, within every family because the kids are not obedient. But children are not perfect by any stretch, so, so that when the child disobeys, do you, do you drop the hammer in, in discipline or do you extend the hand of mercy? So may God give our parents wisdom. But God doesn't need to be given wisdom. And as God gives us his Christ, his Savior, we see both. We see both the the justice of God along with the mercy of God towards sinners. And no other God is this way. No invented, made-up, imagined God is this way. We ought to recognize the truth when, when we see it. And, and this is why God commands us, you shall have no other gods before me. Not before me in order. God's not saying, well, as long as I'm your first God, uh, your best God, your, your highest God in, in your personal pantheon, well, then go ahead and, and have other gods as long as I'm first. Would any husband say that to his wife? As long as you keep me as the highest, as your highest love, well, I, you know, I suppose you can go be with other men. Or would a wife say to her husband, "Just make sure you come home to me every night; otherwise, you can do whatever you want during the day." No, before me means in my presence, before my face. Here I am. I am your husband. I have saved you. It used to be that uh, marriage, quite literally, was the matter of uh, a woman being saved because she needed the protection of a husband from the men who would otherwise abuse her. Now women go looking for a man to abuse her, to use her without committing himself to her well-being. But God is the, is the good and perfect husband to his people. But like any good husband, God is not going to share his wife with other men. God is not going to share his people with other gods. And so he commands her and he commands us. You shall have no other gods before me. So what does the first commandment teach us? First of all, God is holy. He will not be one among many gods to us. And what are the other gods? When as, I, as I was growing up, the other god was always money. And that's very true that we, we worship our money, we base everything on our money. And what that really is saying is that we, that we are, in a sense, worshiping ourselves. We're trusting in ourselves, our own ability to provide for ourselves without recognizing 
what Jesus said that you know God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and 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 even this sparrow is is cared for by God. So yes, our money can be an alternate God. But otherwise God will not share us with other gods. And so he calls us, you may not have any other gods before me, not in order, but in my presence. As you live before me, before my very face. Second, we're taught that we are sinners. Because the very thing that we are commanded not to do is the thing that we are given to do each and every day. To forget our dependence upon God. To forget the salvation that he has provided us in Jesus Christ. So we learn by this command that we are sinners. That that we want the blessings of God, yet while serving other gods. Yet while ultimately serving ourselves. And not giving to God the glory that he deserves. Third, to have the true God as our God is to serve him only and to serve him faithfully. Here's the teacher of sin. Because we do not do that. We fall short of it. And we rely not just upon God for for food and drink, but we rely upon God for his salvation, his forgiveness. And we can be sure of this as well, that as we, as we recognize our sin by the first commandment, we can know that God is gracious and that he accepts us back as many times as we return in repentance and confession of our sins. And finally, we give thanks to God simply by relying upon him. This is, this is the amazing truth of Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon him. Do we understand what that is saying? That we give thanks to God from our hearts. We give thanks to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we call upon him. We, we rely upon him. It seems that, you know, all too often if somebody does something great for us, well, we're not going to ask for anything more from that person. They've already done such a great thing for us. Why would we go back and, and ask them to do something further? But that's exactly what God wants us to do. Because we, we are so utterly dependent upon him. We do rely upon him for everything. So, as Paul says, having received from God even his own son, even uh, unto our salvation, we go back to God. We go back to him for everything. We give thanks to him for everything. And we seek from him all that we need, exactly because whether we ask for it or not, yet if we receive it, it's because he has provided it for us. The first commandment is that we must have no 
other gods before him. Because we live, as Ligonier has uh, made clear to us, I think, Coram Deo, we live Coram Deo, we live before the face of God. We live in the presence of God each and every day. He is our husband. We are his wife. He is the one who provides for us. He has provided for us salvation. He must provide for us each and every day for whatever we need as we would live on in this present life. But we always have that assurance and always that that great promise from him that he will not only meet our needs as long as he would keep us here in this present day, but he has met our need for eternal life. We are going to heaven and not to hell because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He is our God. He declares victory for us. He declares victory over us. He is our God. We belong to him. He belongs to us. And we need to recognize that he indeed is the one true and only living God. Let us honor him with our obedience. Amen. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have won the victory. You have declared victory. You have given us victory through Jesus Christ. Keep us from thinking about our salvation in any kind of a lesser way. Keep us from just following a family tradition. Keep us from going through the motions. Keep us from a a cultural norm of being a Christian. Help us to see that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and translated, transferred, brought into a kingdom of light. And let that light shine so brightly for us that we see Christ with ever greater clarity with each passing day. Help us to see that you alone are God and that you have proven it by what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.